Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to a special bonus edition of Words Matter. I'm Adam Levine. Katie's on assignment. She'll be back next week. So, Joe, tell us about the Shadow White House briefing. Well, it really kind of started as a lark. As I think everyone is aware or should be aware, Sarah Sanders, who's the White House press secretary, has not held a briefing now in over two months. And I have a lot of familiarity with the briefing room, having stood in there about 250 times taking questions. And I went through a series of emotions of first jealousy that she didn't have to brief and then really bordering on outrage that this important thing is not being done. And I was sitting talking to some friends one night and one of them said, why don't you just do your own? And I said, well, how would I do my own? And they said, Twitter. And I thought, why not just do my own? And we were literally sitting around Saturday night at at our dinner table And I said, that's an interesting idea. And she said, no, 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 take the computer out right now. And we took the computer out and started and did it a couple times for fun, got a good response. So I started this week doing a a regular, what I call shadow briefing. It's fun and important. I'll take the fun part first. I get to answer questions the way I look at some of the outrageous things the Trump administration does. I also get to play out a little game we used to play in my office as we were getting ready for the briefing, which was, if you could say anything, if you could answer this anyway, how would you answer it? And we, everyone would give their best answer, none of them which we could use. And this is a little form where I can just use the best answer I can think of. That's the fun part. The important part is, even if it's just to a small audience, it's surfacing the important questions. It's surfacing the things that on a daily basis the White House should be addressing. On any given day when the papers are talking about massing hundreds of thousands of troops and the White House and the Pentagon are both absent in that conversation, it should be pointed out that they are absent in that conversation. And if they don't want to engage and defend their position, people should get in and and define it for them. So it's a very small effort to do that. It has a serious purpose. I wouldn't do it if it didn't have a serious purpose. I also wouldn't do it if it wasn't a little bit of fun, too. Just to put into context, the press have been covering presidents and White Houses since we've had presidents and White Houses. They used to wait outside Lincoln's door. In some research for this episode, I looked up the first White House briefing was held by Woodrow Wilson, a former college professor who was pretty comfortable at a lectern. And on March 15th, 1913, more than 100 years ago, 11 days into office – Explain a little bit of the importance of the briefing and then talk about how you would prepare for it. Well, the briefing is an essential part of our democracy. Before everybody starts going, oh, you're overblowing that. It's just the briefing. It really is. Not everybody wants to tune into the White House briefing every day, but they have the opportunity to. So every day, Monday through Friday, with some exceptions, sometimes you do it on the weekend, If there are questions, reporters serve as proxy for the American public, the American voters, and they put hard questions to the press secretary. They probe, they dissect, they criticize. But it is a great opportunity not just for the public 
to see their government at work and really one of the only opportunities to see at least the executive branch at work beyond photo ops. But it's also something that's important for the administration to go out and frame the agenda, frame the issues, and build public support for whether you're for raising taxes, lowering taxes, cutting education spending, increasing education spending. The briefing is a place where you can go out and make that case, and that case can be stress test with a group of reporters who are quite intelligent, always prepared, and often very clever in the way they go after it. I've often said that the secret of the success of a press secretary is not answering the first question. It's understanding in the first question what the third question is going to be and making sure that you don't tie yourself up in a knot. I don't know where you get that skill, but the good press secretaries have it. You mentioned that it's not about what policy, and I think, again, it's important to remind people, that briefing room that you worked in and gave all those briefings, that was established by Richard Nixon, somebody who wasn't necessarily known for his friendly and warm and fuzzy press relations. But through Democratic and Republican administrations, this has been a staple. Talk about your experience and how your day began, how it was geared to that briefing, how many you did a day because people are under the impression that White Houses only did one. Talk about the process, how you prepared. I think it's really important because this is what – we don't have one now, but this is what real White Houses do. You're about to hear what real White Houses do when they prepare to engage with the press. Let me start by answering that and and connecting it to the first question, which is one of the other great benefits of the briefing. It imposes a discipline on any White House. What do I mean by that? Well, if you know that the briefing's at 1 o'clock and there are a couple of decision points that people are wrestling with in the morning – you don't. You want to make decisions by 1 o'clock. It forces you to make decisions by 1 o'clock. You really don't want the press secretary deciding for you. And it is a great leverage point to sit with two policy people yelling at each other saying, hey, guys, relax. I got it. I'll decide what the policy is unless you call me before 1. There is a real discipline there. And not only applies to staff, it applies to the president. The president knows that if he wants to get the most – Out of a policy announcement or policy initiative, using all of his assets, the briefing being one of them, you've got to be you've got to be ready to do it. And that discipline, you can see that discipline missing in the Trump White House. The fact that they tend to chase tweets. The president in the morning will get up and tweet 15 times and their strategy is to run around and try to figure out what he meant as opposed to the opposite of knowing what you want to do and going out and selling it. And, you know, taking the hard questions, and there are times where you're selling something and the criticism is legitimate and harsh and biting, and you go back to work and do better the next time. There were days you didn't want to go out there, right? The days that were hard were the days that there wasn't much going on. Because on days where there wasn't much going on, reporters were left to their own devices to sit around all morning and come up with the triple loop reverse trick question that you had no idea of the answer. You'd give it a try and there were some days you just knew you were going to go in and get battered because the facts on the ground meant you deserved it. I tried not to take it personally. There were some days I probably did, but it really wasn't about me. It was about – what the president thought, what the president was deciding, and what the administration was doing, and the results of whatever it is we were doing, rather than what I thought about it. But those days were much easier to prepare for because you knew what was coming. The days that that you got surprised were the ones that were a little harder. Obviously, 
it was always more fun when you were going out with good news. I mean, I, I was lucky enough to be the White House press secretary during the only time since I believe the 1970s uh, or maybe even the 1960s when we were running a budget surplus on a monthly basis. You were. Yes. <laughs> and and every month going out with what the budget number was, it was like, how big can my smile be? Look at this number. And, you know, we'd have the president. Christmas every day, every we, month. We'd have the president go out and, you know, take a marker and do the chart going up on surplus. And he, he kept saying, this is ridiculous. Why do we, you keep making me do this? And I would say back, We'll have you stop doing it when it stops working, sir. And he goes, is it working? I said, oh, yeah, it's working. And he'd go do it. So there is a, as I said, a discipline. There's, you know, days you want to go out. There is a lot of preparation that goes in. And let me put it in a couple of buckets. The first is before you go out your first time. You know, not all administrations have this luxury. But, for instance, I was the deputy press secretary for two years. So I was very involved in everything going on. But because Mike McCurry was more focused and his interest was in foreign policy, I tended to defer to Mike on foreign policy and handle a lot of the domestic stuff. And then Mike, you know, he turned to me before the briefing and say, you know, run me through these things. So before I took the job and there was a two-month period between being announced and taking over, I went to what we called NSC school, National Security Council school. I sat for eight hours a day, five days a week for two months. And was schooled on every American relationship in the world. It was fascinating. I mean, it was like a graduate course that you could die for. And I learned an enormous amount. And I also learned that there was a lot I didn't know. I learned that there were places in the world where if you moved a comma or raised an eyebrow during a sentence, you could set off a war. I kind of looked at it as the... The Cyprus, Taiwan, Cuba, Middle East nexus. Now, that sounds humorous, but expound on that a little bit, Joe, that it was deadly serious and why that was. Because these were places that were entrenched disputes marked with violence where all sides spent all of their waking hours looking for signs that their adversaries were moving or that they're the honest broker, the Americans were moving and making policy. And you just couldn't convince them that, oh, I was just winging it today. If you happen to just wing it someday or phrase something the wrong way, it became part of the dispute itself as opposed to... Because you were making, you were articulating U.S. policy. Yes, yeah. And so you had to be very careful about that. So there was that to learn. The landmines, let's put it that way, learning actually landmines was an issue at the time. But those were the political and geopolitical landmines. But I had to learn about the rest of the world and most relevantly what our relationship was. What what was our relationship with the Baltics? I don't know that I'd spent five minutes in my life thinking about that before, but I spent eight hours one day being walked through country by country. Who is the leader? What are the politics? Who's the opposition? What what are our mutual interests? What is the friction? How did these countries relate to Russia and our relationship with Russia? Everything you need to know. And when I finally got up to brief, I got up with a whole lot more confidence. Um, in fact, there was a there was an incident during this and this two month interim period where Mike McCurry, who was my predecessor, was on vacation, and the USS Cole was attacked. I remember it well. And 
you know, Mike and I quickly got on the phone and Mike was adamant. He said, do not go out and brief. You can only go out and undercut yourself if you make a mistake. We had a guy on our staff who was a lieutenant colonel who was on loan from the Pentagon, great guy by the name of P.J. Crowley. And so we said, P.J., this is yours. I'm going, I'm going, I'll stay at school. And it was three days of intense media attention. And P.J. did so well that Newt Gingrich went to the floor of the House uh, and said something like, the White House has finally figured something out. I really like this Colonel P.J. guy. And <laughs> I didn't let him have the job, but I stayed at school. That was like preschool before getting to the real job. Once you start the real job, you have a routine. I would get to the White House at about 6.30 in the morning, and meetings would start about 7.15. There was a meeting of a very small group of people, five or six people, with the chief of staff. There was then a broader meeting with the chief of staff, trying to figure out what was going on that day, what had happened overnight, and what we needed to say or do or change in the schedule with the president. And at those meetings, doesn't the press secretary usually begin the discussion because it's always about what's going on in the news and you're the most up-to-date on what's going on. You sort of had to go into those meetings prepared and then learn during the meeting. That's why I would get in early because I'd want to figure out what what the press was interested in. But it wasn't just the press secretary. The national security advisor had a sense of what's happening on the ground. If there was a flashpoint, the chief staff and some of the political people we had generally also at that meeting was either Bob Rubin and then Larry Summers as the chief economic people, and uh, Janet Yellen was part of the group because she was running the CEA at the time. And then we'd go to a broader meeting with the assistance of the president in the Roosevelt Room, which was about 25 people. Senior staff. Se- that's senior staff going around the room of what everybody's going on. So I, it's, a process, it's an interactive process. I am learning what people are doing, but uh, you're also impacting what people are doing by saying, Oh, hold on a second. I, whoever just said the HUD secretary is doing that today, oh, no, they're not. That doesn't fit with what we're doing. I would do two more meetings, one with the National Security Communications team, internal at the White House, and then the rest of my team. And now it's 9.15, and at 9.30, the press comes in for the first time to do what we call the press gaggle. I have no idea where that term came from. But it basically was an off-camera, on-the-record briefing at 9.30, which generally would go for about a half an hour. And it was just more informal than the in the briefing room, but still had the same stakes. There was no video of it. The press wanted to know, first and foremost, what the president was doing that day. And they wanted to get some initial reaction to anything that had happened overnight or late in the day. So you'd walk through the schedule, and then they'd say – well, you know, the Speaker of the House made this speech last night. Did the president see it? What's his reaction? The great part about the gaggle and why I can't figure out why people got rid of it is it allows the White House to drive the the agenda for the day. What's done in that session is what the press, absent something else changing, goes and tries to get reaction from everyone else from. It was a good news driver. It was also a great session for us in figuring out whether what we were trying to do that day was going to work. I would say at least once a week, I'd finish the gaggle after doing my sales job of here's what we're doing today. Pay attention. This is really important. I'd walk over to the chief of staff's offices and say, they're not buying. This is the story they're doing today. Let's change it up. Let's have the president address that story or let's have let's do something different. 
about once a week. We, we would then have to go over to the Oval and talk to the president about, I know we told you we're going to do this, but we want to do that for these reasons. The president was often skeptical because he didn't like his schedule and his agenda being driven by the press. But over time, he grew to trust me that I knew when we could push and when we had to back off. He would always say, well, your friends in the press think. And I'd say, well, today I agree with them, sir, and I think we should, I think we should do A or B. So this was an opportunity for you to do an in-news cycle correction and make an adjustment to get your message to be effective with that so that by the time you stood at that podium a couple hours later. It's a good phrase, in-cycle adjustment. You know, you can use your instinct of what you think the press is going to do, but a much better way is to just do a session with them because it isn't just one person. You've got 30 people crowded into the press secretary's office who all come in with a slightly different idea of what the day is, but all kind of walk out with the same idea based on the input they all gave. If someone thought China was the big issue, but seven people in a row have asked about the Middle East, the guy who thought China is thinking, uh, maybe China isn't the story today. There is a bit of a group mentality that develops, and it gives us the ability to address that. By 10 o'clock in the morning, you've done seven or eight meetings. But that's the most important part of the preparation. And the thing that I tell people who have gone on to do the job is you can study all the briefing books you want, and you need to do that. But what you have to do is you have to be part of every process because the way you can fully understand and represent the president is being part of the the, the process, sometimes just witnessing it, other times weighing in where you thought it was important, and then also being engaged with the president on a regular basis and just getting a sense of what was in his mind. The president liked to play hearts. And when I got the job, I had no idea how to play hearts, but I my instinct told me the way I'd be able to mine him for information without him thinking I'm you know, asking him a bunch of questions that he doesn't want to answer was that I have to learn how to play hearts. So I got a computer program and taught myself how to play hearts. And I don't know, we were playing like the second or third time and I made a play and he looked at me and he goes, you learned on a computer, didn't you? And I was <laughs> like, yeah, nothing gets by you, sir. On flights, we sometimes play for three and four hours. And it'd be, I'd have to not be listening to not know what the president was thinking because the conversation would range from talking to his mother-in-law to the fact that he'd have to get up and leave to mediate a civil war. I'm not sure he would appreciate this, but there was, maybe I'll do it this way. There was a civil war that was going on on another continent <laughs> that he was mediating and he was on with the two presidents one time and he didn't want to stop the hearts game. And so we kept going and he was mediating it and someone did something that he didn't like and he sort of let out an expletive. And then had to spend the next two minutes saying, oh, no, no, Mr. President, that wasn't directed at you. Someone just walked in here and, and, and we were all like, maybe we should stop this game now. Maybe, maybe diplomacy is more important than this game. But that proximity to the president, I mean, in our White House, it wasn't hearts, it was baseball. You had to learn. I was not a huge baseball fan. I'm To this day, I thank George W. Bush for, for several things. One of them is I'm a huge baseball fan. But that proximity, like you said, those moments, those unscripted, those un scheduled meeting moments, those are hugely important for a press secretary. Yeah. So if you're looking at the day, you know, you finish all of these meetings, you're part of the process. Between 10 and 1, you're doing two things. You're dipping in and out of meetings as decisions are being made, and you're doing the hardcore studying. We used a thing called the briefing book. It's nothing new, and it barely changes over the year. It's a black binder. The only thing I did 
when I got there was I did it the first day and I couldn't find anything. And I said, can you please just alphabetize this? <laughs> so, I, you know, if it's Cyprus, I know it's at the beginning. If it's Russia, I know it's near the end. What I would do to prepare is I would read the entire briefing book every day. And most of it had been in there day after day after day. I'd still go through it quickly. And you find by the third time you read through it, you had it. You've got an entire team, too. And, and again, I'm sure your deputies and the assistant White House press secretaries are doing the same thing in terms of talking to reporters, figuring out what they're interested in. But there's this big collaborative process that when you go out and represent the United States government and say words that matter to them, official yeah. words, you're prepared. Yeah. Now, there's an enormous amount of coordination. There were people in, in our press office who reached out every day to every agency. There used to be a sequence of briefings where – I believe the State Department went first, the Pentagon went second, and I went third. So the head of public affairs at the State Department, the head of public affairs at Pentagon and I would get on the phone every day at just before the State Department went out just to make sure. We did two things on the call. Make sure we were all on the same page. And you'd be surprised how often there'd be some nuances that, that we'd then have to go to the policymakers and say, sort this out because – Madeleine Albright saying something slightly different than Bill Cohen at the Pentagon. And secondly, we would have a discussion of ownership. Well, who's going to own this? Who's going to take the lead? Is this a State Department thing? And should we all defer? Or is this a White House thing? And it wasn't exactly a democracy, but it worked well. I think the president had the ultimate vote. If he wanted it to come from the White House, it would come from the White House. But most days, it was just kind of sorting through these three things you've got. And and then I would watch uh, the State Department every day. The Pentagon was just like twice a week and watch that and then be ready to go out and brief. Joe, you talked about going to NSC school. And I'm, I remember after 9-11, when I served at the White House, Condoleezza Rice would sometimes sit in on a very important day watch that Pentagon. We had the Pentagon briefing, which they moved to every day after 9-11, right before ours. And she would instruct. Now, again, I think our press secretary needed a lot more training wheels than, your, than you did. But there were really, really important topics, I was told. There were certain things I couldn't say. Talk about those really important moments, those national emergencies, those international crises, those tragedies, where in some sense, the world is looking to that podium to see what the reaction of the White House, the president, and the United States is. There are places in the world where even a pause at a certain point will cause both sides to seize on what did the White House mean by this. And I kind of put them in the category of there was China, Taiwan, probably the most sensitive about language, the Middle East, India, Pakistan, where it was very important to speak clearly and consistently, and then Greece, Cyprus. And you really needed to stick to the script. That's what I would do most days. And every once in a while, you get in trouble by going off a little bit. But the day I got in the most trouble revealed a little trick of the trade. There was a, a reporter who came to the White House from Greece, a Greek reporter, and he came every day to the, to the briefing room and asked a question every day. And the arrangement that I had with him was I can't spend all morning researching everything that's going on between Greece and Cyprus. So if you want me to – if you want to get what you need, which is an answer, you're going to have to give us the question in advance. Only person in the briefing that ever gave us a question in advance. Reporters would sort of say, hey, we're really interested in – a couple of reporters would say, we're going to Vietnam next week. I'm doing a setup story. So I'm going to ask you today, if you, you know, you know, so that you have a chance to review this stuff if, if you haven't. So this you know, Greek reporter came in. I got into a lot of trouble one day because he asked two questions. 
and I'd never paid attention to the to his questions before because I always had the answers, and he had a very thick accent. So he asked a question, and I had no idea whether it was the first question or the second question. I asked him to repeat it. I still couldn't figure out what it was. I asked him to repeat it a third time. I I finally turned to one of my deputies and said, was that number one or number two? And he said, number two. And I gave the number two answer. <laughs> uh, let me give you another example. One Friday late night, early morning, about 3 o'clock in the morning, the phone rang at home. And it was the Situation Room saying that there was a report that John Kennedy Jr.'s plane was missing. He had been flying from Manhattan to Martha's Vineyard. You know, that's just one of those stories you know. However it turns out, it's going to be an international story. It's right before July 4th weekend, so it's a little slow in the news. Yeah. So my day started at 3.30. And for whatever reason, it wasn't something that was picked up on quickly. So we had time when I went into the office to prepare everyone for putting this story out and being the trusted source of news information as opposed to people just didn't know what they were talking about. Does that involve the Coast Guard, the NTSB, a lot it, of agencies? It involves everyone. And, and I kind of on the fly decided that there was a great guy at the Coast Guard. I got every government agency on the phone and said, until further notice, the only people who are going to speak about this issue is either the White House or the Admiral. And I said, I, I'm here at the White House. I don't plan on speaking about this. And then I got on with the Admiral and I just said to him, the story is irresistible. So not only do you have to talk, you have to talk on a regular basis. So we set up a system where at the top of every hour, he did a briefing, even if he had nothing new to say. But at the top of every – and we, you know, we know how tragically that story turned out. America's first political family, it was a terrible tragedy. But it highlighted how hard it is to get credible real information out there and to try to stomp down as many of the rumors as you can. And that this was a day mostly because we had a little bit of a head start that we were able to do that. It did not do anything to alleviate the grief of the family. But I think not having wild speculation out there was appreciated. And everything we did was first cleared by the family. Anything we said, we would go to the representative of the families and say, here's what we're planning to do. Here's what we're planning to say. And they, they had a chance to participate in the process. I'll give you one last example. Early in 1999, we had a military action in Kosovo. There was a lot of misinformation put out by Milosevic and his government. For whatever reason, I couldn't get NATO you know, engaged in the game. And I will always remember when you come in the West Executive driveway, you come in the doors and the Situation Room is on your right. And as you know, I always would go in there first, get my intelligence briefing, and say to the Executive Secretary of the Situation Room, what's going on? And this morning I went in and everybody kind of looked at me and like normally you just get blank stares, but everybody just kind of looked at me and I'm like – you know, did I like put my pants on backwards or something? And I went over to the guy who was running the situation room. And he had the briefing, but he sort of had it open and he was just pointing at something. He said, you might want to read this one first. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, it's a transcript of President Clinton and uh, Prime Minister Blair's phone conversation. And I was like, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I got a lot of things. What are they talking about? And he said, you. I thought, okay, I'll read this one. And it was Blair and Clinton about how badly their PR teams were handling the messaging around the operation of Kosovo. I got on the phone with Blair's person, 
And we both got on the phone with the head of the NATO communication operation. It was in that phone call I realized that this guy had a staff of two. I'd never asked him whether he was staffed up. This was all my fault. Alistair Campbell, who was with Prime Minister Blair, shared in the blame. But we, we just, neither one of us had taken the step to go and look at, like, how equipped are they? They were just not equipped. There was a very bright guy running it, but he just didn't have the, So we got all of the NATO countries on the phone very quickly that morning. And by the end of the day, we had each donated two communicators to the NATO operation so that and Alistair himself went over. And within a week or so, they were a highly functioning communications department. So it's a long way of saying you do well in these situations if you're prepared. If you're not prepared, you're going to get caught out. And finally, Joe, when you think of the importance of managing the press, managing the story, as we said, presidents aren't necessarily fond of their coverage from the White House. LBJ famously said that if he could get up from behind his desk, walk across the Potomac on top of the water uh, over to the Pentagon, the Washington Post headline the next day would read, President Can't Swim. Donald Trump thinks by kicking the White House press corps out of the process, somehow he's helping himself. Is this a good communication strategy in addition to all the other problems with it? It's hard to pin Trump down on this issue because some people make the case that he thinks the press is irrelevant. And given the social media tools that he has, Twitter, Facebook, other tools, you don't need the press. He can speak directly to his supporters. That assessment is wrong only because he's obsessed with the press. He's obsessed with what CNN is saying about him. He's obsessed with what the New York Times. He's obsessed with what Maggie Haberman is writing about him because – you know, take Maggie, for example. She grew up in New York City politics and covered City Hall, and they have known each other and of each other for a long time. So he is the classic narcissist who needs constant reinforcement. So he's more interested in what the press is doing and saying than I think any recent president. You have to go back to Nixon. You can tell by his tweeting that he's watching a lot. He's not only watching those who praise him, the the Fox News Nation, the info wars, you know, the crazy conspiracy theories, he's watching the mainstream media too. He's watching CNN and MSNBC because he gets outraged by it. And I doubt there's someone coming in saying, hey, Mr. President, I think you should know and be outraged by this. Joe Scarborough just yes. said. In one of the shadow briefings coming back today, I did a, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek version of the president's schedule, which is get up, have breakfast, watch Fox and Friends tweet, have breakfast again, put Fox back on, start tweeting again, put CNN on, get really mad, start really tweeting, start rage tweeting. So he really is, uh, I think, an anomaly of a president. I clearly think it doesn't help him. I'm not giving President Trump credit for the economy. But, you know, this is a president who has had Dozens of moments where he could, if he showed some discipline, communicate what his administration is doing and take credit for things, whether it's deserved or not, and really focus the communications on the things that people care about. And every time he takes himself off course. And he takes himself off course because he believes that it's all about him. He believes he's the victim He believes that people are being unfair to him and he's incapable of not punching back, even when it would be much better for him to ignore it. 
that's a skill that successful presidents all have. When to ignore attacks. When to know that this attack doesn't hurt me. And if it, it the only way it could hurt me is if it knocks me off what I want to do and what I want to say. And this president doesn't have that impulse control. So on, you know, days where there's record uh, low unemployment, he's talking about Bob Mueller. It was interesting to me doing the research for talking about the White House briefing with you. 1998, the year that you know the House began impeachment, the year that it was in high gear, was the year that any White House had the most briefings of any administration in the history of the republic. We were President just, Clinton survived. We were just gluttons for punishment, I think. We developed a strategy, which was is not brain surgery and was simple. It was at times very difficult to implement, but we did, which was the president does not go out and publicly criticize the investigators. The president does not portray himself as a victim. The president does portray himself as doing the people's work. In public, the only thing he talk about is the people's work. Now, there were a couple of times where he slipped and we paid a price for it because the press was waiting and they wanted him so badly to engage on how much he hated Starr and how much he hated Louis Free or, and any of those things. But by and large, he stuck to the strategy. We've had two briefings this year. It makes no sense. It works against them. But put aside the, the partisan differences and what I think versus what Sarah Sanders thinks, and the, in the end, nobody cares. What people do, I think, should care about, and I think they do care about, is that their government is transparent and is responsive to them. And there's nothing that shows transparency and responsiveness than the daily briefing where – and you don't see this in a lot of countries where you know that once a day, Monday through Friday, someone's going to stand up there and say, this is what the president thinks and take your best shot. Take your best shot, criticize it, pull it apart, and we're going to stand here until – and we're going to stand here until the very last question's asked. Joe, that's an excellent point. I started in journalism in 1998. And one of the things I got to do was watch your briefing every day. And I was always amazed at how long you went, depending on the day and the topic. You know, usually it was a half hour, but there were times when you were touching up against an hour. Sometimes you were even a little over that if it was a big day. And you would answer from, like you said, those people from those foreign correspondents to those people who worked for specialty publications. You would answer every question. Why did you do that? Some of this is tradition. And the tradition when I took over and I thought it made sense – the White House is, of course, it's the people's building, but it's the president and his staff's workplace. There's a little oasis in there, the press briefing room and the press office staff that I view as like an embassy. It's like neutral space. It is co-owned by the White House and the press. And in the briefing room, I felt like this was the place where the, the press set the rules and the press secretary followed them. And there was a tradition of uh, the first question going to one of the wire reporters. It was generally Helen Thomas, who was the dean. And the second tradition was the briefing was over when Helen said thank you. Right. And it wasn't over until Helen said thank you. It wasn't over when things were getting tough or when you made a mistake and you really felt like I got to get out of here. Well, you didn't like the question. Or I didn't like the questions or I wasn't feeling well or someone forgot report, to put right. the water there and I was like parched. The briefing was over when Helen said it was over. And there were there were times when Helen and I had lots of nonverbal conversations as I was looking at it saying, Helen, like, 
And she'd just smile and say, no, you're not done yet. And you'd stand there and stay until every last question was exhausted. And and Helen was good, and she took the job seriously. If it was, like, ridiculous, you know, when you were going off on – people were asking the same question over and over again. She'd call it. She'd call the briefing, and I would appreciate that. And there were days that she – you know, she, she instinctually knew that if we kept asking, we were going to get more. And her instincts were generally right. And the thing that, like, kills me – it just bugs me when I watch Sarah Sanders – is when she does deign to do a briefing, she gets about 10 minutes in, and if it gets tough, she sort of closes the book and says, okay, I've got to go to something, goodbye, and walks out. They don't have the sense at all that the press is part of the process and that the press is not just an important part of the process, but there's an obligation to include them in it. There's part of me that thinks I'm glad she's never walking into that room again because she dishonors the room. She dishonors James Brady, who the room's named after, and dishonors the the tradition that's been passed along between Republicans and Democrats, men and women, smart people and not-so-smart people, truth-tellers and evaders. But we've all had a sense of respect for the room and the people in it, and it is totally gone. And that's too bad, and that's mostly – a disservice to the American public. So there's a void. And you're going to step in as a as a former White House press secretary, and you're going to try to at least ceremonially fill that void. Talk about what you're going to do. There are questions that need to be surfaced that are not being surfaced. Uh, at least the public can't see them. I'm not, I'm not criticizing in any way the White House press corps. They are pushing as hard as they can every day. But we don't get to see it. I think a lot of people think, well, what's the press doing? They're not asking the questions anymore. They are. We just don't get to see it's being done in the shadows of of the White House grounds. So I think a big part of this is surfacing the important questions, surfacing the hypocrisy in some of the proposals and things that get said, putting some historical context on things that get done, but doing it in a way that highlights and if you won't answer it, I'll answer it for you. And you're not going to like my answer because my answer is going to be the cold, hard truth through the magic of social media and in this case, Twitter. At least until they start the briefings again, I'm going to go on Twitter. I'm sure I'll miss some days, but I'm going to try to go on and just use a little bit of seriousness, a little bit of tongue in cheek, a little bit of the needle to surface the questions and highlight the void that they've created and the answers that the public will see and should see absent the White House stepping up. Whether they'll ever step up or not, whether they will ever pay attention to anything I'm doing, who cares? For the people who used to turn into C-SPAN, you know, and watch the briefings every day, which was a relatively small audience, they can now tune into Twitter and that they can, they can see that the questions are getting asked. They can see that this administration is not meeting the challenges of the office and in many cases are dishonoring the office. And if the the White House wants to step in and fill that void, I'd be glad to step away. But I think it should be done. And I don't want to pretend that somehow this isn't any fun. But it does have a purpose. I really do think that people need a place to know what their government's doing to see someone at least raising and surfacing the questions, if not 
answering them very seriously. There are lots of places. Social media is great. This, I hope, is one place where people think they can go. I'm easy to find, and I'm, I'm at Joe Lockhart. It's not, it's, it's not hard. And I think, ultimately, I'd love to take some of these questions into you know, this forum. They can email them to us. Yeah. Uh, you can go on our Twitter. You can go on our website. You can email Joe the questions. As Joe noted, most White House press briefings begin with the president's schedule, the message of the day, and then the press secretary says, with that, I'll be happy to take your questions. So, Yeah, no, and you know, we do something at the end of the normal podcast, which is just what's on my mind. I'd much rather talk about what's on you know, our listeners' minds. So we'll figure out how to do that. I'm going to try most days to – not only point out that there isn't a briefing, but to highlight the issues that they should be addressing. And in my own unique way, the consequences of not addressing them. Absolutely. Joe, thank you very much. We will include our listeners' questions for the Shadow White House Press Secretary and the Shadow White House Press Briefing here. With that, to be continued. Thanks, Adam. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.